Amen. Y'all may be seated. We're continuing in our journey through the book of Acts, picking right up where we left off in Acts chapter 12. That'll be the scripture that Deemer will be preaching from today. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we love to uh, give you one. We have extra in the back there. So if you just raise your hand and one of the gentlemen in the back will bring you a Bible. So if you'll just raise your hand and if you need a Bible this morning, they will bring it to you. The scripture will also be on the screen so that you can follow along if you'd like to follow along in the ESV version that I'll be reading from. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and we will be reading all the way through verse 24. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring, out, bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose, others, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and responded that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word cannot be stopped. It multiplies and it increases. And no man, no government, no king, no nation, no war horse can stop the power of your word. So God, we pray right now that you'd prepare our hearts to hear your word being spoken and being taught. God, we pray, Lord, that you'd be a redeemer. Lord, that you would give him the words to speak. And Lord, that you would just bless him with the ability to, to say what you want him to say. And Lord, you, we, we, we believe and we teach here at this church that the sermon is not one-way communication. It's two-way 
And we want to be expository listeners as well. So God, this morning, we help us to have ears to hear what your word has to say. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh man, what a passage. You know, uh, sometimes I wonder if our Christianity is not violent enough. I don't mean violence in the sense of a, of a religious fanatic, a terrorist blowing up people in the name of his God. That's not what I mean. But what I wonder sometimes is if our culture has reduced uh, Christianity to something that is just merely warm and sentimental, something that's tame and passive, something out of, a, out of a warm and fuzzy Hallmark card, kind of a precious moments kind of Christianity. And, and, and I wonder sometimes if we, we really frame Christianity in terms of something that's just, that's just very easygoing, very comfortable, very peaceful. And don't get me wrong, Christianity, in Christianity you will find peace. In Christianity, you will find love, you will find comfort, but in Christianity, you will also find warfare. This warfare began ages ago in the heavenly realm when an angel committed cosmic treason against God. He decided to be his own God and to exalt himself above God. And a bunch of other angels joined him in that rebellion. And that rebellious angel we now know as Satan and his angelic followers are known as demons. And, and those uh, and this cosmic warfare, which began in the heavenly realms, has spilled over onto planet Earth uh, when Satan seduced Adam and Eve to join him in this uprising. And God, in his loving mercy towards Adam and Eve after they sinned, uh, he, he promised a savior, but God also promised to Adam and Eve warfare. God in Genesis 3.15 declared to the serpent, declared to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, some translations may say seed, and her offspring or seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So I looked up the word enmity, that's not a word that we use too often in regular conversation. Really, there can be different shades of meaning behind that word, ranging from mutual hatred to hostility to a deep repugnance or rejection. It's really warfare-type language. And the enmity in Genesis 3.15 speaks of an ongoing conflict between two groups. You have the offspring of the serpent, which are humans who reject God and are slaves to Satan. And you have the seed of the woman, which speaks of those who belong to God, who love God, who trust God, who follow God. And then Genesis 3.15 narrows the focus when God says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So you have two fronts in this cosmic warfare, in this conflict. You have the people of God in conflict with the people of the serpent, and then you have a direct, personal, one-on-one -on -one conflict between the one offspring of the woman and the serpent himself. And the serpent's head will eventually be crushed by this one offspring. Now, most people, regardless of their worldview, recognize that there is a good and that there is an evil. Most people recognize that there is an ongoing conflict between good and evil throughout history. But most people don't have a proper understanding of this cosmic warfare because most people's beliefs are not informed by the Bible. In Acts 12, in the, uh, the, the passage that Steve just read, there are really three main points that I'd like to focus on. I've got three observations about Acts 12, and these observations of what is happening in this story are applicable to everyone in this room. What we see in this story is a microcosm of the larger warfare that's raging. And the three things I want to focus on today are, number one, the fierce attack of the enemy, number two, God's sovereignty over the enemy, and number three, God's total defeat of the enemy. So let's look at the first one. Uh, the the uh, fierce attack of the enemy. Look again with me uh, in chapter 12 of Acts, right at the beginning. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So we begin this story with a violent, intense attack against the church of God from Herod the king. And, 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 and this family that Herod belongs to, you may recognize that name Herod, this Herodian family had a history of warring against God and warring against the people of God. Uh, the, the, the man in this chapter is Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great. You know Herod the Great as the one who massacred the children in Bethlehem in his attempt to destroy the Christ child. Herod Agrippa is also the nephew of Herod Antipas. This is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And, and, and under the reigns of Emperor Caligula and later Emperor Claudius, Agrippa was given a substantial amount of Palestine to rule over, including the, the land of Judea. Now, Herod was primarily a politician. He was partially Jewish in blood, and, and when the Jews tried to, uh, when, when he was around the Jews, he tried to act like the Jews. And when he was around the Romans, he tried to, well, you know the saying, do as the Romans do. Well, that's, that's what Herod did. He was a politician. He was kind of a chameleon sort of fellow. And, and like his family members, Herod Agrippa finds himself at war against God and against his people. Now, governing Judea was never easy for anyone. Uh, the Jewish people were unlike any other group that the Romans had conquered. And so for whoever, whoever oversaw Palestine, their job security was always on the line should word of unrest among the Jews reach the ears of the emperor in Rome. So one of the most important duties for any ruler uh, in this region was to pacify the Jews. And so what we have now, as we come to Acts 12, we have this sect, uh, this, this, this group uh, of people now known as Christians, and this group is growing, this group is spreading, and it's causing tensions within the Jewish community. Herod sees an opportunity here to exalt himself, to demonstrate his power, and, and, and to, to, get, to, to gather favor amongst the Jews. And how he's going to do that is he's going to declare war on God. Now, let, let's look at the, here the, at the fierce attack of Herod against the church. The text says, "...the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church." And the first thing he does, according to verse 2, is he kills James with the sword. Now, it's interesting that he kills James with the sword. The Jewish Talmud informs us that, that this mode of execution was used when, 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 people, when someone led the people to worship other gods. So, so Herod, even in his persecution of the Christians, is being a politician, and he's performing this execution in a Jewish way to curry favor among the Jews. He's communicating to the Jews. He's saying, the reason that I'm doing this is because James is instigating the worship of another God. He's instigating the worship of Jesus, who, of course, most of the Jews at that time, and, and, and really throughout history, don't believe is the one and only God. So Herod is pretending to be a zealous Jew defending the Jewish faith. He's being very shrewd and very clever in what he's doing. And right after this, Herod puts Peter in prison. But notice the text gives us the reason why he's put in prison. What does it say in verse 3? It says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter also. In other words, he executes James by the sword. He cuts his head off. A way of communicating to the Jews that he's doing this in defense of the Jewish religion. He's doing this in accordance with Talmudic law. And, and, and Herod, like any other good politician, he is going to pay close attention to the, to the public polls. He's going to pay close attention to the focus groups and, and how people are responding to what he's doing. And, and when word gets back to him, he hears that the Jewish people love, love this, that, that he executed James, one of the leaders of the early church. They're totally behind Herod 100%. So then the next thing he does, like any any politician, he's going to give the people what they want, more of what they want. So the next thing he does is he puts Peter in prison. And believe me, Herod's intention is not to have Peter just languish in prison forever. The text says in verse 4, if you, if you look with me, that he puts Peter in prison intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now Herod is trying to look like a good Jew again. 
The fact that Herod doesn't kill Peter right away shows me that this definitely is a political move. It's Passover time. It's a holy time. And the Jews believe that, that these holy days should not be desecrated by an execution. So notice that verse 4 says that he puts Peter in prison, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. In other words, Herod is going to look like a good Jew, respecting the Passover, and then when that's all over, he'll, he'll just look fair and just by, by, by bringing Peter out to the people for a mock trial. His intention was to kill Peter, just like he killed James. And the viciousness of Herod towards the people of God is nothing new. It's merely one more outworking of God's uh, declaration in Genesis 3.15. That there would be enmity, that there would be strife, that there would be conflict, that there would be warfare between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of God. This, this story plays out over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. In Genesis 4, what do you have? You have Cain, the wicked seed of the serpent, hating his brother, righteous Abel, who, who loved God and is the seed of the woman. And you see an enmity there, as God predicted. And what does Cain do? Cain lashes out at the seed of the woman to destroy him. You have Pharaoh in the book of Exodus hating the children of God. He enslaves Israel and he commissions the execution of all Jewish male babies. You have Haman in the book of Esther seeking to commit genocide against the people of God. You have Herod Agrippa's grandfather, a seed of the serpent, seeking to destroy the one chief seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the murders of the children at Bethlehem. And you have, in the past 100 years, more believers persecuted, imprisoned, killed, than at any other time in human history. Now, no one in this room is being attacked by a violent king. No one in this room is being thrown in prison for the faith here and violently attacked. They are in other parts of the world. Today, this morning, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world languishing in prison on death row, about to be shot or beheaded or what have you because of their allegiance to Christ. But that's not going on here. So, so for many of us here this morning, it's hard to think in terms of warfare when I'm talking about war. Because when we think of warfare, we think of guns or swords or bombs or hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so because we think of war in this fashion, we tend to feel safe and not in danger. And yet, if we think of warfare just in that way, we delude ourselves. Prison, the sword, the firing squad, physical assault, are way down low on the list of the dangers that you face being a seed of the woman, being a follower of Jesus Christ. Way down low on the list. Being a Christ follower exposes you to dangers and enemies and a type of warfare far more dangerous than anyone or anything that you may encounter in the mountains of Afghanistan where the Christ-hating Taliban lurk. If we are primarily focused on those physical dangers, on those types of dangers, and if, we, and if we see that as the biggest threat, then we are sitting ducks in the true warfare that is raging even in this room this morning, even as I speak. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our wrestling our fighting, our warfare, isn't against people. Now, that's an amazing statement from Paul. And really, on the surface, seems to be a ridiculous statement from Paul. Because if anyone was always wrestling against people, it was Paul. People were trying to kill Paul all the time. Paul was in and out of jail all the time. People were coming after him on a regular basis. Paul was constantly undergoing physical and verbal and emotional abuse. And eventually Paul found himself beheaded for the faith, just like James. If anyone wrestled against flesh and blood, if anyone wrestled against people, it was Paul, wasn't it? And, and so on the surface, it's like, well, Paul, what are you talking about? Of course we wrestle against flesh and blood every day. Yet Paul says, no, we don't. Instead, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, 
we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, who are they? Well, they're not flesh and blood. They're not human. They are, they are the spiritual forces of evil. They are Satan and his demons. And Paul recognizes that, 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 of course, we are in conflict with human enemies from time to time, but he wants us to be more concerned with our spiritual enemies who are far more dangerous than men. Herod Agrippa was violently attacking the church, but he, like all men outside of Christ, are part of the offspring or the seed of the serpent and under the sway of the evil one. And, and Herod, because he is of the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, is simply imaging his spiritual father in his hatred towards God and towards God's people. Herod, on the surface, seems to be the chief enemy in Acts chapter 12. But there really is an enemy behind the enemy who is energizing and influencing Herod. And the same evil cosmic powers that influence King Herod are the same beings that are coming against you every single day. But some of you don't realize it because you feel safe in your chairs this morning, unlike the persecuted church in China. You don't realize it because you are wealthy compared to most of the world. You don't, you don't think you are at war because you are comfortable compared to the majority of people in the world. But the weapons that Satan is using against you and using against me in this warfare are more deadly than a beheading. They're more deadly than a mere jail cell. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you this. What's worse, being persecuted and beheaded because you are a Christian or losing your family and ruining your reputation because you are addicted to internet pornography. Your computer is a battleground for this spiritual warfare. What's worse, having people oppose you because you preach the gospel, or not praying or reading your Bible every day because you don't have the time, and because you're really busy, and therefore you totally miss out on the blessings that God has for you as you connect with Him daily. How you use your time is a battleground for spiritual warfare. When you go to work and your boss mistreats you and he gives you a hard time and you're faced with a choice to either turn the other cheek, to be humble and exhibit a Christ-like attitude or lash out to get back at him and gossip around the office about him and take your anger home with you and then unleash it upon your family, your workplace. And your home is a battleground for spiritual warfare. What am I getting at here? What I'm trying to say is that if you are a Christian, your whole life is warfare. Every day of the week. And my fear is that we don't, we don't think about it. We don't take it seriously. And we can look at the killing of James, and that seems to be, in Acts 12, that seems to obviously be a satanic attack. But we don't understand that the devil, every day, is trying to kill our witness, trying to kill our joy, trying to kill our marriages. And my fear is that the devil is killing some of you, not with the sword, but with comfort, with a decent house, with relatively decent health, with good friends, nice computer, gadgets. He's you. He's using these things, which are not evil in and of themselves and can be blessings from God, but the devil can use these things to lower our guard, to reduce our sense of a need for God, and to make us more vulnerable to sin and temptation precisely because we are so comfortable, unlike our brethren in China, whose spiritual senses are sharpened because of the persecution that they live under every day. The, the same Peter who was thrown in prison in Acts chapter 12 by Herod later on wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you think Herod was vicious in his opposition against the people of God, 
Herod is only an image of the real McCoy. Peter says the devil is like a lion on the hunt. And he says we need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. How sober-minded and watchful are you? Do you start every day realizing that the satanic powers and principalities are gunning for you? Men? Husbands? How protective are you of your family against the evil one? Are you being sober-minded and vigilant in respect to your family? Do you understand that there is an enemy that seeks to devour your wife? To devour your kids? I think every man in this room would take a bullet for his wife in a heartbeat. Wouldn't you say that's true, guys? I don't think there's no question about that. But how many of you will be just as protective of your family spiritually as you are of them physically? I know you'll fight a man trying to break into your home and hurt your family. I, I know that, guys. I'm not worried about that. But how viciously will you fight the devil? Are you allowing things into your home... That are sinful. Are you cultivating an atmosphere of godly peace and joy and humility in your home, men? Or are you contributing to the ungodliness that is in your home by your negative attitudes? Or by your own sin and rebellion against God? There, there, there may be some of you in this room who are, who are attacked by the devil this morning. You sinned on your way to church. You sinned against your spouse. Sunday morning, I believe, is the most difficult morning of the week. And I think the reason why is because we're coming collectively to do something that Satan hates more than anything else. We are coming to exalt and praise and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And it's no coincidence that, that Sunday mornings before church often brings more stress and more bickering and more fighting amongst the family than any other day during the week. Does that just happen in my house? <laughs> you guys are like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Demer. Everything's peaceful on Sunday morning all the time. <sighs> this is exactly why Steve and I have instituted a prayer time before church every Sunday morning here at 8.50. And you are welcome to join us. And, and, and we are doing this because we know that we are entering into worship, but we are also entering into battle against wicked forces that don't want us to worship and they don't want the Word of God to go forth with power and with conviction. And this prayer time is one way that we are recognizing the warfare that we are in. So men, God designed you to be the protectors of women and children. God designed you to be warriors, to be fighters. So I'm challenging you this week more than ever to realize that the Christian life is warfare. Read Ephesians 6 this week where Paul talks about the armor and the weapons of God with which you can use to fight against the devil. Every day, pray for your family. Pray for your wife. Pray for your kids. Be on your knees. Read the Bible. You fight against flesh and blood with your fists. You fight against the devil and sin with the word of God and with prayer. So the vicious attack of Herod against the church in Acts 12 should remind us that the, the people of God will always be opposed and oppressed and attacked, whether it's through the sword or through more dangerous attacks, such as temptation to sin. On top of that, this is also a reminder of the larger war that the devil is raging against God. We see Satan in Acts 12 attempting to strike a vicious blow against God by hurting the church as he targets two prominent leaders in the church, James and Peter. How successful is Satan in this attack? Well, this leads me to my second observation in Acts 12. God is sovereign over the enemy. Now, we see God in total control in regards to how he releases Peter from prison, right? Peter has nothing to do with, with his escape. Peter is sleeping when the angel comes to rescue him. Peter is totally passive. And not only that, but the people who are praying for Peter to be released have weak faith. They don't even believe it when they hear that the very thing that they prayed for, Peter's release from prison, has actually come to pass. They have weak faith. And yet despite the passivity of Peter, and despite the weak faith of the believers, and despite the fearsome rage of Herod, I might add, God does exactly as he pleases. This is all God's doing. God releases Peter, Peter from jail anyway, despite all of those things, and God makes a fool out of Herod in the process. Well, that's all great, 
But how do we think about the execution of James in all of this? That's great and that's exciting that God delivered Peter from prison. But right before that, Herod chopped James' head off. How do we deal with that? Most people recognize that there is good and evil. That there's an ongoing conflict between good and evil. But many people see this warfare, this conflict between good and evil, in dualistic terms. Their worldview has been influenced by dualism. Dualism is a worldview which rightfully acknowledges that there is good and that there is evil, but wrongfully suggests that both sides are equal. And sometimes you have, in in, in dualism, you have this, this worldview where sometimes the forces of good are getting the upper hand, and they're scoring points, and they're winning. And then sometimes you have the forces of evil winning, and scoring points, and getting the upper hand, and it's, it's really this back and forth, toe-to-toe, mono mono struggle going on and on and on and on with no, in, no in, in, in sight. That's dualism. Dualism really goes back thousands of years and is found in many ancient mythologies and religious systems where you have a good God and you have a bad God, and both of these gods are eternal. They've both been around forever, and they've just been duking it out forever throughout the ages, and that'll continue to go on and on and on into eternity as well. Dualism even has crept into Christian thought, into Christian thinking. Sometimes we think like dualists as well. Many people have this concept of you've got God in one corner, you've got the devil in the other corner, And they've been duking it out for thousands of years, going back and forth, going toe-to-toe. And and, and while no Christian would say that Satan wins in the end, they do see a world in which Satan sometimes gets the upper hand. And then sometimes God gets the upper hand. And in reading Acts 12, one may be tempted to view this story in dualistic terms. There does seem to be a back and forth between good and evil in this story. You have Herod catching James and beheading him. So what's the score? Satan won, God zero. And then Herod throws Peter in jail, and it seems like Herod's going to score another point, but God miraculously saves Peter from prison. Tie ball game, right? Wrong. It isn't a tie ball game. It's actually God two, Satan zero. Because, because God is totally sovereign over his enemies and he is in control of everything that happens in Acts 12, even the beheading of James. I want you to hear this. God was even in that situation. Even more than that, God planned it. God planned it. It was in the will and purpose of God for James to glorify God by being a martyr for Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, it's interesting, the Lord Jesus says to James, He says, James, the cup that I drink from, the baptism that I'll be baptized with, you, James, are going to drink that cup. You, James, are going to share in that baptism. And that cup and that baptism that Jesus said that James would face refers to James's suffering and eventual martyrdom for the gospel. Jesus said that this was going to happen. So when Herod seizes James and, kill him, and kills him, God is, is not sitting in heaven surprised by this and wringing his hands and saying, Whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Guess plan A didn't work out. No. The execution of James by Herod is plan A. If God could rescue Peter the way he did, he could have done the exact same thing for James. But he does not because God has a special thing, a special honor appointed to James. The honor of martyrdom. Acts 12 is not Eastern dualism in action. Acts 12 is giving us a picture of the exact opposite of dualism. We have a picture of the complete control and sovereignty of God over all things, even His enemies. And as we consider the warfare that we are in, that point cannot be overemphasized enough. Herod as he lashes out against the church, as he lifts his hand against God, that same hand that tries to strike a blow against God 
finds itself actually serving the purposes of God. God is glorified in the rescue of Peter, and God is glorified in the execution of James. And Herod is unwittingly serving the purposes of God, even as he tries to fight God, and Herod is made to look the fool. And this is how it always is with anyone who fights God. This is how it always is when anyone does evil to God's people, to you in this room. Many of you know the story of Joseph, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Joseph, uh, betrayed by his brothers. Why? Because Joseph had a revelation from God that he would be greater than his brothers. His brothers didn't like that. They rebelled against the word of God and viciously attacked Joseph, throwing him into a pit and selling him into slavery. We'll see what becomes of your dreams, Joseph. We're going to get rid of you. And yet the very act of the evil actions of Joseph's brothers in selling Joseph into slavery sets off a series of chain reactions and events and circumstances until many years later, Joseph is elevated to be ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and Joseph's brothers encounter him and they bow before Joseph, just like God said they would. And Joseph uses his newfound power to rescue his entire family from famine. And Joseph's brothers are fearful that God will get revenge. That the Joseph's brothers are fearful that Joseph will get revenge on them. And Joseph says, you know what? God sent me to Egypt. Now, on a human level, we're thinking, wait a minute. Your brothers sent you to Egypt, Joseph. They sold you as a slave, Joseph. But you see, Joseph is not a dualist. Joseph sees God involved in everything. Joseph knows that there is never a moment when evil has the upper hand and has God on the ropes scrambling to fight his way out of the corner. No, Joseph says to his brothers, and this is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, brothers. But what you didn't know is that even, even as you were trying to stop God's plans from coming to fruition, even in attempting to stop them, you were actually being used by God to make them come to pass. In the case of James, it seemed on the surface that evil had the upper hand. But God was in control the whole time. And every martyrdom that has happened in the early church was used by God to strengthen the church's conviction and resolve. Tertullian, the Christian defender of the faith who died in 225 A.D., said to his enemies, We multiply whenever we are mowed down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. That's another way of saying what you mean for evil, God means for good. Unless you are still tempted to feel sorry for James, that he got his head cut off and Peter got to walk away from prison, Think about this. Where was James after he was beheaded? What does Paul say of believers who die? To live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain. Why is it gain? Because Paul says that when you are absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. One millisecond after Herod's blade severed James's head, James was ushered into glory and was present with the Lord in fullness of joy. What a great victory for James that day. And I guarantee you that after he was killed, he was way better off than Peter and anybody else who remained alive. But God had more missions for Peter to do, and Peter too later on would experience the honor of martyrdom. And so God sovereignly let Peter out of prison while he sovereignly let James die by the sword. If you let this truth sink in, that God is utterly in control of everything even over his enemies, even over your enemies, that is incredibly encouraging and life-changing. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is mighty in battle. The Lord is so invincible that even the attempted blows of the enemy actually serves the purposes of God. How cool is that? Do you understand that this principle works in your life too? Not just in Joseph's life, not just in James' life, not just in the life of the Bible people, 
but in your life also? Some of you in this room are going through very difficult times right now. Some of it may be directly the hand of the enemy. Some of it may not be, but you can bet that the enemy will use your situation to discourage you and to attack you. And yet, whatever evil and difficulty and hardship comes your way, I guarantee you that it will not thwart the purposes that God has for your life. These things will not ultimately destroy you. They will only serve the purposes of God. As the Scripture says, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who have been called according to His purpose. All things even the most vicious attacks of Satan, and even when you are brought low in this spiritual warfare by your own sin, God cannot be stopped, and His purposes cannot be thwarted. There is nothing that happens that is outside the sphere of His control. If there was, there would be cause for great despair. But thank God we have a sovereign God. And even when things seem to be spinning out of control, which it must have seemed to the Christians in Acts 12... Even then, God is in control, and Herod and Satan can do absolutely nothing unless God allows it. For me, the most encouraging thing in the sovereignty of God is that even in my deepest sufferings and even in my most difficult struggles, there is a purpose. What the devil means for evil in my life, what other evil people mean for evil in my life, God purposes it for his people for good. Even if I never understand exactly why God allowed some things in my life to happen, I don't need to understand all those things as long as I know that God is working all things together for my good and that He is in control. That's all I need to know. The Christian life is intense warfare. The powers and principalities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and all their intense and twisted and evil fury are coming against you and against me and against Harbin's church and churches all over the world every day. And while the warfare is dangerous and sometimes can be painful, the people of God have absolutely nothing to fear. Which is why the psalmist says in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or as Paul says in Romans 8, We are more than conquerors in Christ. If you are in Christ, you will be under the gun. There will be intense warfare but you will not be ultimately destroyed because God is sovereign over the enemy. All right, so the first thing, the fierce attack of the enemy, we looked at. The second thing, God's sovereignty over the enemy. And finally, we see God's complete victory over the enemy. Look with me in verse 20. Now God was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and breathed his last. All throughout this chapter, Herod has been warring against God. Now, all throughout this chapter, Herod has been keenly focused on his self-exaltation and his self-glorification. The chapter begins with him beheading James and arresting Peter. Why? To please the Jews. He wants to be a man that's going to be feared. He wants to demonstrate to others how superior he is. He wants to show his enemies that Herod has the power of life and death. With a word from Herod, James is executed. And yet... As we see Herod's desire, we see Herod's desire to lift himself up and show himself as great continues at the end of this story. Herod revels in being seen as a man who holds life and death in his hands. And the people of Tyre and Sidon were dependent on Herod for food. Herod ruled over Galilee, which was the breadbasket for that area. So the lives of these people were literally in the hands of Herod. And the people of Tyre and Sidon come begging and groveling to Herod for food. And oh, how Herod must have loved that. He reveled in the moment. The text says Herod put on his royal robes. And the Jewish historian Josephus gives us a few more details saying that Herod put on this brilliant, this brilliant clothing that reflected the light of the sun, giving him almost this divine appearance. And he gives an oration to the people and the people are shouting, the voice of a god 
And not a man. And Herod is soaking up the glory. And he is soaking up the praise. And he's enjoying the exaltation of himself. And God strikes Herod down. And Herod's story is over. Just like that. All these years of playing politics, chasing power, crafty maneuvering, shaking his fist at God, all of this comes to a screeching halt as Herod dies a disgusting and humiliating death. Why? Because Herod loved his own glory and his own exaltation and not the glory and exaltation of God. And he is destroyed because of it. And we see that unlike in the world of dualism, good wins and evil loses. And Herod had been losing before he died, really. Herod didn't sneak in a few victories before God delivered the final fatal winning blow. Herod was losing the battle all along. He beheaded James. James goes to heaven, the church is strengthened, and God is glorified. Herod throws Peter in prison, God frees Peter, the disciples' prayers are answered, and God is glorified. Herod gives a mighty speech, and people are groveling at Herod's feet. God strikes Herod down, Herod is eaten by worms, and God is glorified. And after all of Herod's fighting against God, what is the final outcome? Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. God three, Herod zero. God three, Satan zero. It is foolish to fight God. There may be some in this room who are fighting God. Friends, you will never win. Adam tries to exalt himself above God, and Adam returns to the dust of the earth. Pharaoh tries to grind Israel into the Egyptian sand, and his army is drowned in the Red Sea, and his kingdom is devastated. Haman tries to commit genocide against the Jews, and he is hung on the gallows that he built. And the serpent lashed out at Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. Evil men conspired together to destroy Jesus. They beat him. They mocked him. They nailed him to a tree. And this same Jesus, who is bloodied, who is bruised, who is battered, triumphantly walks out of the tomb three days later, crushing the head of the serpent and overthrowing death itself. And all who believe in Christ and all who are found in him will share in Christ's victory. Your enemies really have no power over you. The devil, as ferocious and as dangerous as he is, really has no power over you. All that is done against you will be turned around for your good and will humiliate the powers and principalities that war against you. And even death has no more power over you if you are in Christ. And even though the Bible exhorts you to be vigilant and to fight, remember that you do not fight alone. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is mighty in battle. And He always fights for His people. He fights for you. And He always wins. The destiny of Satan and his demons is eternal torment in the lake of fire. Your destiny, if you are in Christ, is to rule and reign with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. A place where every tear will be wiped away. No more pain, sorrow, suffering, death. Fullness of joy forever. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're not a follower of Christ, you need to know that your life is in a state of warfare also. You're at war with God. You probably don't even realize it. Most people don't realize it. But you are. The Bible describes mankind in a state of enmity and hostility towards God. There is no peace from man towards God because of man's persistent rebellion and sin against him. And there is no peace from God towards man as the threat of his judgment and wrath overshadows all. Yet the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ there can be reconciliation with God. God poured out the wrath that was meant for sinners like you and me on a Jesus Christ. And because of Christ's, uh, because of Christ's sacrifice, the wrath of God has been satisfied for all who believe in him, and there can now be peace between God and man. So life is warfare no matter what. But if you are not in Christ, I'm asking you to switch armies and join the, and join the winning side. If dualism were true, this war would last forever. But it's not true. And this age is moving towards a very final and conclusive end. And, and when it is all said and done, you don't want to find yourself on the wrong side. God is exceedingly patient and slow to anger, but his patience eventually runs out. It ran out with Herod. God and Satan are not equal. 
And there is coming one day, a final battle, where all accounts will be settled, and the enemies of God will be overthrown forever. The final peace that God will bring comes not just through the gathering of his people, but will come through the obliteration and destruction of his enemies. The Apostle John, in Revelation 19, John, by the way, interesting, is is the brother of James who was beheaded in Acts 12. John has this vision of what's to come. And listen to what John says. I'm closing with this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This warrior God will not war forever. Peace will come. And my prayer is that you will share in his peace starting now. Receive the Lord Jesus today. Receive forgiveness of sins and mercy today. God loves you despite your rebellion against the king. And he loves to lavish mercy and grace and forgiveness to all who come to him by faith. He gladly pardons with joy all who come to him. Let's pray. Father God, this was one of the hardest sermons that I've ever preached in my whole life. And I pray that anything that has been said this morning that has been a useless and foolish distraction, you would purge that. And anything that has been said from the Word of God that has been accurately preached, I pray that you would burn those things in our minds and in our hearts. And God, I pray... For anyone in this room who has not received you as Lord and Savior, that that would happen today. And I pray for the rest of us that we would take the warfare seriously every single day. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. I don't deserve it. And you give it to me anyway. Thank you for who you are. And thank you that you are a fortress that we can run to for protection, for safety, for security. Thank you for fighting for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.